This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, filling in today for your regular host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. Joining us from Ontario, Canada is Abraham Blondeau. Good day. And from our office in the UK is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And in Jerusalem, Israel is Brent Noctegal. Greetings. Well, Russia's illegal war of aggression on Ukraine is now in its 51st day, and we're seeing more and more innocent civilians slaughtered in Ukraine's streets, more and more mass deportations and mass graves, and more and more war crimes that have been exposed from Bucha to Mariupol. And it looks like there's no end in sight. To bring us the latest on this, we'll go to Abe Blondeau. Thanks, Jeremiah. Yeah, as you said, the war in Ukraine keeps escalating. And uh, just as a rundown on what's happened this past week, there's been an escalation in Russian uh, atrocities, but also uh, some pretty embarrassing um, disasters, too, for the Russian Navy and the Army. The, the Russian Black Sea Fleet flagship, the Moskva uh, cruiser, it was severely damaged. The Ukrainians claim they used a, uh, a Neptune uh, missile, which is an anti-ship missile. And uh, there were other reports of sabotage or some kind of explosive device, but there are reports that the the ship has now sunk and that uh, Russia retaliated by uh, striking a an, uh, anti-ship missile factory in Ukraine. Uh, so I think that points to a uh, possible um, uh, source of what actually happened. Uh, but that's a massive blow to Russian prestige. Turkey has closed off the the Black Sea to any more ships entering. So it doesn't seem like Russia will be able to uh, resupply their Black Sea fleet. And that does leave a a hole in their air defense against, uh, and it leaves the rest of their fleet vulnerable to Ukrainian hostilities. Uh, Some other reports, uh, Putin seems like he may have shipped 100,000 Ukrainians to remote parts of Russia. Uh, So that's a pretty big uh, escalation back to more Soviet-style removing of peoples out of, of places they conquer. There's also claims Russia used a chemical weapon in Mariupol. There's it, the the war, the Russian side of the war, they are focusing more on reducing Mariupol, the capture of the city. There have been uh, groups of Ukrainians surrendering as they run out of ammunition. And there's many U- European analysts that they believe that once Mariupol falls, Russia will begin what they're calling phase two of the invasion, which is just to the, the concentrate on capturing eastern Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin came out of silence uh, this week and said that uh, Russia will achieve their gains in in Ukraine. Uh, so it does appear that they, they are determined to uh, at least conquer the, the two breakout regions in eastern Ukraine. And if the current trends continue, they will keep using more and more brutal, uh, brutal methods to do so. Um, as a final point, it, there are some reports that Putin is putting, giving more responsibility to the general who was responsible for all the atrocities in Aleppo. Um, he's called the Butcher of, 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 of Aleppo. So he's uh, not afraid of using maximum force to, and massive civilian casualties to reach his aim. So if he does uh, have more discretion in the war in Ukraine, we could see just this keep uh, continuing to become uh, more bloody and gory and and a lot more war crimes committed in the in the country yeah well it's just just stunning to hear about all this as you said it sounds like the sort of thing that we're you know accustomed to hearing about happening in world war ii but this is happening right now in 2022 so it is just very sobering uh, but we know that the united states has been using all kinds of economic sanctions to try to punish the russians for this wicked and illegal war what can you tell us about how that is affecting Russia and and what kinds of reactions to those sanctions we're seeing from the Russians. Yeah, this is the the bigger story happening in the background that we need to keep track of, and that is uh, Russia, China, uh, their Asian allies setting up an alternative financial system to the one currently dominated by the United States. 
so on Saturday, the financial ministers of the BRICS group, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, they met together to discuss using different national currencies besides the U.S. dollar and setting up a different integrated payment system as an alternative to SWIFT, which is the the one the Western world uses that, that uh, especially the United States dominates. The Trump has been reporting on uh, BRICS for a long time that it's a very significant threat to a U.S. dollar hegemony. But also, uh, the trumpet has also been uh, warning that Russia's pivoting away from sanctions, trying to get uh, get rid of the effects of sanctions, could actually be a very uh, significant prophetic event. And so this this is another step forward in that direction, where you have these nations um, comprising most of the world's population coming together to uh, create a system that would undermine the United States' uh, financial power. And uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, he's he's warned about BRICS uh, in years past, just how that is uh, leading to the prophesied mart of nations that's mentioned in Isaiah 23, um, and that they're going that's going to undermine America's financial system and cause its help cause its collapse, and also uh, start the economic siege, which is prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. And so the the major point here is we're seeing the beginning of this this trend move in that direction, uh, but also that one of the effects of the war in Ukraine is Vladimir Putin is a very dangerous man. He's he obviously wants control of Ukraine, and he's willing to do pretty much anything uh, to reach that victory. Uh, but also, uh, Bible prophecy shows he'll also use these bigger schemes, such as uh, financial power, to try to undermine the United States' global power. Um, and so that's what uh, Mr. Joe Fleury has been warning about. And uh, it appears that this meeting of the BRICS ministers is a pretty big uh, step forward into something practically being made that will create the mart of nations. And uh, the last part of this is what will really uh, bring it together is, is what Europe decides to do. So right now, Europe has been going along with America and following their sanctions. But if BRICS comes up with something that's, um, that's viable, uh, prophecy shows that Europe is actually going to side with this Asian economic alliance. And that's really what will turn the tide against America in the in the world financial sphere. Well, I'm really glad that you brought this uh, this BRIC story up, Abe, because there was a, a pretty big headline yesterday with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just kind of issuing a plea to China, basically saying this is China's big moment to choose whether it wants to uphold the current world order, which we know China has benefited from immensely, or if it wants to choose to side with Russia on kind of a path of destruction. And and it feels really naive to hear this kind of plea going out to China, because it's very clear that China has already chosen Russia, and it's deeply committed to that choice. Um, and this information that you've just told us about, you know, Russia and China and the other BRICS nations working together to undermine the dollar, that just underscores how that choice has already been made. But we will uh, be sure to include a link in our show notes for today's episode to an article by uh, Trump Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. It's called Why We Must Warn About Vladimir Putin. And it goes through a lot of the uh, prophetic relevance that Abe just discussed there. Well, thanks very much for that, Abe. While we're on the topic of Russia's war on Ukraine, we'll turn our attention now to Kyiv, Ukraine's capital city, where several Western politicians have been visiting the president just to show solidarity and support during this time of barbaric violence. But there was one high-profile politician that planned to visit this week, and Ukraine said no thanks. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, a, uh, a fascinating development uh, from Germany, where the German president was apparently all set, ready to go to Kiev, uh, following in the example of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, following in the example of uh, a whole load of Central and Eastern European leaders that have traveled there to show their support. And Russia very, or Ukraine very quickly said, no, you, know, you are not welcome in, in Kiev, I think was, was their response. And... Uh, what I think has been very, what is, I think has been fascinating to see is Germany's response to that. Because I think the rest of the world kind of looked at that and basically said, 
Fair enough. We understand why Russia or or why Ukraine is making this decision, why Ukraine doesn't want him, because, you know, he's been uh, he's he's been one of the key architects of Germany's close relationship with Russia. Gerhard Schroeder, the former German chancellor, who's now basically an employee of Vladimir Putin, he has been a, a huge part of that. But Steinmeier is from the same political party. He was foreign minister during a lot of that period. Uh, you can go and find all kinds of pictures on the internet of him being uh, pretty close and, and pally with Vladimir Putin, with Sergei Lavrov especially. Uh, I've seen reports that he and Lavrov are friends. You can even go back and find pictures from the 70s and 80s where a very youthful Steinmeier is attending anti-NATO protests in Germany. So you know, for his entire political career, he has been working to bring Germany closer to Russia. So you know, he's been trying to support Kyiv for decades. He was also critical. You know, Russia came along. They grabbed a chunk of Ukraine in 2014. Germany did almost nothing. Or I mean, they, they put in some kind of token face-saving sanctions, uh, but not much meaningful. And this, indivi- uh, this individual, Mr. Steinmeier, was key uh, f- in that response as well. So a lot of people, they're looking at this and saying, well, you know, fair enough. If I were Ukraine, I wouldn't want him visiting my capital either. Why, after all of his decades of support for Russia, should he get all of these great photo ops and come and kind of look like a hero? Uh, you know, definitely not. Germany does not see it that way. The, the German chancellor said that Ukraine's response was somewhat irritating, to put it politely. The Social Democratic Party, the ruling party in Germany, basically accused Ukraine of uh, unduly interfering in our country's domestic politics. You've seen Germany really support what has turned out to be a horrifically murderous regime. And we, you know, we, heard, we just heard a bit about that. Um, and there's been more and more news articles this week. You know, 100,000 Ukrainians deported to various different parts of Russia, including into the, the uh, Arctic Circle. Uh, and Germany's been supporting that. Germany is sending about a billion, or Europe at least, about a billion euros a day for European gas, largely due to German decisions uh, and, and decisions really made in full knowledge of the consequences. And yet there's no kind of repentance really there. Or there's maybe a surface level or we want to appear like we're doing something. But when they get called out for what they're doing, they they very quickly start to attack Ukraine rather than have a look at themselves. Yeah, it is really bizarre to see Germany here playing victim when you know how much, you know, Germany in general and Steinmeier in particular has has really enabled Russia. But but that's what they're doing. Um, I wonder, do you think that all of the bad press that's coming against Germany right now, do you expect that to bring about any sort of a change in Germany's shameful enabling of Putin's war? I mean, I think we've seen the pattern for that already, where... Germany has worked very hard to give the appearance of a change. And like we kind of talked about last week, there has been a real change in the military. Uh, They've tried to make it look like there's been a change on their position of Ukraine. But it's all of these, okay, yes, we're going to send Ukraine all of these weapons. And then a few weeks later, you find out they never arrived. They're still being held up by bureaucracy and red tape. So it seems like they're doing as little as possible and uh, as little as they can get away with. And certainly they're trying to... um, make it look like they're helping Ukraine. I think what is interesting is, another thing that's interesting is German public opinion is overwhelmingly in favor of Germany doing more here, of sending weapons. And the German public is actually getting uh, quite peeved with Germany failing to actually send anything to Ukraine. However, the business, what's really pushing Germany to make this decision or playing a key role in Germany making this decision is German businesses. Uh, we've got an article up. Uh, this is a great article from Joshua Michels. Uh, German businesses block sanctions and finance Russia's war. I might get into that a bit more. I've got a Trumpet Daily radio show coming up next week. But just all of these German businesses, Airbus, BSAF, these big German companies, their CEOs are all out there saying, no, do not put sanctions on Russia. It will, the sky will fall. It will destroy the economy. We'll fire thousands of people. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, and what is fascinating for that is you go back to the end of last year and Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry was saying, uh, you know, it's German businesses that have been in this driving seat with this relationship with Russia all along. Uh, Angela Merkel herself said that she had no choice but to do Nord Stream, this Nord Stream 2 pipeline project with Russia because of this, these pressures from German businesses. 
So you're seeing this pretty evil relationship with Russia. You're seeing German businesses behind it. The dots that Mr. Flurry connected at the time uh, was you could go back to 1945 and find very solid proof that uh, that Nazis at the end of the, the war said, we're going to go underground and we're going to hide within German businesses. So to see German businesses having the same kind of relationship where we'll enable Russia uh, for our own purposes is something that really should cause people to, to worry and to take note and to say, well, you know, what are, what's going on with these? Um, is, is there something to these reports from 1945? And I think the key article I'd like to draw attention to is one from January 31st by Mr. Flurry, Why Germany Just Betrayed America. I mean, all of these articles that I'm talking about are several months old because Mr. Flurry anticipated them because of Bible prophecy. So, uh, we could, this article explains exactly why uh, we're watching for this relationship with between Germany and Russia. You know, there are these very specific prophecies that talk about Germany simmering with discontent, being a boiling pot, as Jer Jeremiah 1 talks about, resentful against the way the world is right now. Uh, there are other prophecies that talk about the, the kind of the Nazi spirit after World War II, going underground, hiding, working behind the scenes before coming back. And so in World War II, the Nazis worked with Russia to divide Europe. You're seeing that same spirit at work right now. It's a bit quieter. It tries to hide it. It tries to make it look like it's maybe doing more to stand up to Russia. But it's there. And, and Mr. Flurry had these articles several months ago uh, because they were based on Bible prophecies. So that main article I'd like to, like to point you to, Why Germany Just Betrayed America. Why Germany Just Betrayed America. We will uh, be sure to include a link to that in our show notes for today's program for any listeners who would like to understand this in the prophetic context. Well, thanks very much for that, Richard. We will take a look now at Jerusalem, where serious clashes have broken out on the Temple Mount. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Tensions in Israel over the past uh, three weeks have been really high just because of a series of terrorist attacks on Israelis that have amounted to about 14 people dying of five separate uh, major terrorist attacks. There were others that you probably won't hear about because they didn't end up in Israeli deaths. And it really has culminated, well, it seems to be culminating today, uh, this Friday, because of a really odd uh, turn of the calendar that only happens every 30 years where you've got the Jewish Passover that happens this evening here uh, in Jerusalem in, in an hour or so uh, beginning. And then you have the second Friday of Ramadan also taking place, Friday being the day that um, most of the um, Muslims, or many of the Muslims really flock to the Temple Mount, flock to Jerusalem. And so there's been a worry that there would be increased violence. And indeed, that's what we saw this morning with rioters uh, coming onto the Temple Mount. I think there was about 100,000 on the Temple Mount this morning, throwing stones, fireworks at police, um, causing the Israeli police to come onto the Temple Mount and and uh, fire into the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so there's a lot of footage everywhere, and, and it's really hard to get an unbiased picture of what's happening, uh, even from Israeli sources, it seems, these days, um, that, that would like to pull the blame or push the blame uh, on the odd uh, crazed Isra Israeli or Jewish fanatic that wanted to have a Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount. And this, the Arab response was responding to that, apparently. However, that seems you know, highly unlikely that Israel would ever allow such a thing to happen. Nevertheless, I think we are, there's still another couple of weeks of, of uh, Ramadan to go, and we are in this really dangerous period, similar to what we saw last year, when you had the Temple Mount being brought into the discussion in terms of Hamas stand, standing up and saying, Israel is threatening the sanctity of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and so we're going to start a, a rocket barrage on Jerusalem and everywhere else. And so Israel, uh, Egyptians have been mediating efforts between Hamas in the Gaza Strip and also Israel over the past three hours to try and make sure that doesn't happen. However, um, We'll see. We'll see what happens again tonight. Thirty years ago, when this when this happened, there was a um, there was a serious attack in Netanya where thirty Israelis were killed, or over a hundred were were wounded. And Israel does fear that there there was there's going to be similar attacks um, in the next day or so, and and have even foiled a couple of cells that were big cell terrorist cells that were going to have Passover attacks. So while the violence that we saw in the Temple Mount. I don't think it's been seen for about a year. Um, 
it seems to have quietened down this afternoon, uh, Jerusalem time, but we'll see what happens over the next couple of days. Would you be able to put this in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners and, and let them know what literature they could read if they'd like to better understand it in that context? I think most of our listeners would understand that Jerusalem is incredibly important. Biblical prophecy surrounds the events that take place in this city. Um, in terms of how we know how close we are to the Great Tribulation, it's involving events that are going to happen inside this city. And so one of those events we, we watch for that, that do, do give a really good timestamp of where we are uh, leading to the, the return of Jesus Christ is, is an Arab takeover of half of Jerusalem. And so when we and we know that 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 takeover is going to be uh, initiated with a cause of fighting for the Al-Aqsa Mosque, fighting for the Temple Mount. Um, and so when we see tensions really do when tensions are increasing between Israel and the Arabs involving the Temple Mount, we can really see that this prophecy found in Zechariah of half of Jerusalem falling to the Arabs is getting close to its fulfillment. Uh, an article that people can read that it would explain this prophecy in the context of these events we're watching right now is entitled, Is the Fall of East Jerusalem Imminent? It was in the August 2021, 2021 uh, Philadelphia Trumpet. And as, as Mr. Flurry has admonished all of us numerous times, uh, we all need to watch Jerusalem uh, and events in Jerusalem because that's how we get kind of our our, our understanding of how close we are to these or, and and how close we are to Jesus Christ's return, and then also where we are in terms of the Great Tribulation and these other end time events as well. Is the fall of East Jerusalem imminent is the name of that article once again. Thanks very much for that, Brent. We will turn our attention now to the United States, where a former president wants the government to start censoring what citizens watch and read. For this, we'll turn now to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the fight over the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election is heating up. Over the past few weeks, there have been some really like bombshell reports out of uh, Pennsylvania and, and especially Wisconsin uh, showing just like rampant fraud at nursing homes, rampant fraud with mail-in ballots. And the, uh, the current presidential administration is really uh, looking for finding ways like how are we going to deal with this and, and continue to appear legitimate in the eyes of the people. And so uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama has come up with uh, his solution to that to that problem and uh, was actually uh, on an event, a pretty big event, co-hosted by The Atlantic magazine and the University of Chicago. This um, this event was a roundtable discussion held on April 6 entitled Disinformation and the Erosion of Democracy. And at this uh, Erosion of Democracy discussion, uh, Barack Obama, he, he sat down and he talked with Pulitzer Prize winning historian Ann Applebaum, Nobel Prize winning journalist Maria Reza, the investigative reporter Adriana LaFrance, uh, Barack Obama's own political consultant, David Axelrod, and Atlantic Editor-in-Chief Jeffrey Goldberg. And Obama really emphasized that the government needs to do more to start censoring what people read and hear. Uh, this is actually one of his statements to uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, where Obama said, for all the flaws that may exist in our own society, you can get any information you want right now. Yet, in our society, you currently have 40% of the country that appears convinced that the current president was fraudulently elected and that the election was rigged. You also have 30 to 35% of the country who has chosen not to avail itself of a medical miracle, the development of a faster vaccine than anything we've seen before. I do think there's a demand for crazy on the internet that we have to grapple with. And part of the reason I'm spending more time thinking about this through the Obama Foundation is because I work with young people from across the country. And so basically what Barack Obama is saying here in this roundtable discussion is that uh, about 40 percent of the country believes that Joe Biden was fraudulently elected and close to that much uh, believes that the mRNA vaccines that the government's pushing for COVID-19 uh, have dangerous side effects. And so rather than uh, <laughs> engage in an open discussion about election fraud, 
or mRNA vaccines. Obama is saying, like, well, we really need the, these big social media companies to work with the government to start censoring this so people don't read about election fraud and they don't read about these mRNA vaccines. And so uh, he was pretty vague on the details, other than he said that the big tech companies need to enact regulatory measures to halt toxic information. Uh, but if you look back, other things that him and his family has been involved with, it was right after the Capitol Hill protest. It was actually his wife, Michelle Obama, who called on the big tech companies to uh, have Donald Trump uh, kicked off Twitter and the other social media platforms. And they, they obeyed her directed. Donald Trump is still banned from those platforms. I mean, maybe Elon Musk, if he if he finds a way to buy Twitter, can can fix that in the in the future. But right now, um I mean, that's why Elon Musk, he's talking, that's kind of a different topic, but he's talking about privatizing Twitter because he's basically admitting that Twitter's not really a private company. It's doing what the Biden administration tells it to do uh, and, and censoring this information. And now it's still leaking out and people are finding out about the election fraud. But uh, Obama, Obama knows that really the only way to convince, uh, keep the nation in the dark concerning what happened at that election is you have to stop them from being able to read about what happened at that election. Yeah, really interesting to see billionaire Elon Musk, you know, enter the picture there. It's it's hard to know if that will lead to a reversal of Twitter's ban on, uh, you know, Trump and other politicians. It's hard to know at this point whether it could uh, weaken the Obama's ability to control free speech, but it is, but it is an interesting development. Um, could you please place this in the context of Bible prophecy? Yeah, the, the, I mean, that definitely the Elon Musk angle is something I find interesting because I guess uh, for those who are listeners who haven't kept up with that, uh, he, d- he just bought 10% of Twitter and then Twitter offered him a position on their board of directors and he turned it down because I guess one of the uh requirements of that is that he could only own 15% of Twitter if he's on the board and he he has ambitions he made an offer to buy the whole thing and so you're you're definitely and he made it known that he's wanting to fight for free speech on Twitter and so like I said whether that happens or not there is definitely a pushback about this free speech angle uh Barack Obama and his wife know the only way to uh, uh to keep the the current president in office is to keep is to start censoring information uh but there's a big push towards free speech in america right now and it's hard to see how this will play out but uh as longtime listeners of this program will know that our outer editor-in-chief uh mr joe flurry he has a his latest article on the topic is what will happen after trump returns to power where he he covers a prophecy in second kings 14 that talks about an end time type of uh, Jeroboam II, whom he's identified as Donald Trump, uh, is going to temporarily save America from being blotted out. Uh, but that verse there in verse 28 says that he has to war to recover something that was stolen from him. And really the only thing that's been stolen from Donald Trump is the election. So you're going to have like this war to recover the election, uh, which Bible prophecy indicates he'll win. And so, I mean, that that is a good indication that uh, at least in the in the near term, Obama's not going to be uh, successful at keeping from people from finding out about election fraud. If Trump's going to be reinstated into office, people are going to have to find out about it. And if they do find out about it, that 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 either means that uh, some of the uh, alternative media outlets need to be doing uh, become a lot more popular than they are. Or someone like Elon Musk or someone else does need to uh, to get in there and start uh, and start really shaking up how these big tech companies do business. Because, like I said, if, if Obama's vision's realized, uh, the White House press office will just tell the big tech companies what they're allowed to say, and and large portions of the population would never never hear about this. This is something that God definitely has to to uh, to intervene in if you're going to fulfill that prophecy. What Will Happen After Donald Trump Returns to Power is the name of that article by Mr. Gerald Flurry. And Andrew actually has an article up about this on thetrumpet.com right now as well. It's called Barack Obama Trashes Free Speech. So please take a look at those if you'd like to understand more about this story. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We will take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about the world's third largest city under lockdown. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Zero COVID. That's the name of the policy that Chinese dictator Xi Jinping has used since the earliest days after his nation unleashed the COVID pandemic onto the world. This has meant locking down any area in China where even minor outbreaks have occurred until infection rates are back down to zero. And now Chairman Xi is imposing this policy on one of the world's largest cities. For this, we'll go once again to Abraham Blondeau. Yeah, some uh, haunting videos coming out of Shanghai, China, where, as you said, that they're imposing a zero COVID policy on a city that has over 25 million people, um, which is hard to uh, to picture. That's 60 percent of the population of Canada in one city. Um, and uh, they've been locked down since March 28th. So it's been about three weeks. Latest reports show that they've recorded uh, over 130,000 cases with zero deaths. Yet, despite that, the whole city has been shut down. Uh, people aren't allowed to leave their homes except to buy a, a COVID test. So you can't leave for groceries, um, exercise, any any other needs they may have. So it's leading to a pretty um, terrifying situation where you have people living in the city, mostly in high rises. Uh, or in apartment buildings, and they, uh, they're standing on their balconies screaming for help, screaming for food, um, saying that they're starving. Uh, you even have reports of people uh, just jumping off their balcony and committing suicide, uh, choosing to do that rather than to starve to death. The teams that were supposed to be going around uh, delivering food to people aren't coming. Um, you have drones flying around. Uh, telling people to get back inside, not to speak out against the regime. Um, even people's pets are being killed. Um, some pretty graphic photos or videos coming out of there where if the pet tests positive for COVID, they will terminate them, uh, throw them in the in their wagon and, and uh, dispose of them later. So it's, it's pretty uh, haunting, terrifying. There's many videos out there of it. But this is the zero COVID policy that the Chinese government is taking and yet it's not stopping the spread and there's been zero deaths in in a city of 25 million people. Yeah, this is uh it is just a slow motion nightmare that millions of Chinese are enduring. Some 25 million as you said just forced for weeks on end to stay at home. Most of them didn't even have any warning or any time to stockpile food. So just a terrifying situation there, but really if you look at China's history this sort of thing is not entirely new. Yeah, exactly. This sadly happens to almost every generation of the people of China since uh, Mao took power in the 1950s. And uh, it's it's something that the communist government in China, um, they have done on purpose. So all these famines in China, for the most part, they've been government created. The most famous one is the... Uh, Mao's great leap forward in the uh, late 50s, uh, early 60s, where around 50 million people died from a famine. And that's which uh, Mao wanted to industrialize China. So he had all the farmers move into the cities, promising them jobs and factories. Yet, as millions and millions of people moved, they they had nowhere, no food for them. Uh, The agriculture uh, collapsed in a lot of places. Yet despite um, so many people dying, uh, China was still a net exporter of grain during those years. Um, So instead of saving their own people, they decided to make profit um, exporting Chinese grain around the world. So that just shows the the mindset of this government um, and that they're willing to do it again. Just today we have technology where we get the grisly picture um, on social media, and it's much harder to hide these uh, atrocities today um, but it's just revealing the Chinese government and it's just revealing just how um, how much of a, a tragedy it is that the Western media they've actually been apologizing for this in the reports trying to explain away the, the sort of treatment of the Chinese people um, so it just shows the kind of regime that China is and that uh, it's just something that um, most of the Western world is naive about, or we, we just turn a blind eye to. 
Could you please place this in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners? Yeah, this I think is it's a very uh, graphic uh, illustration of of a Bible prophecy uh, of Christ, where he talked about the times of the Gentiles, where right before Christ returns, these powerful uh, governments would would rule the, the world, um, and they would act like beasts. They wouldn't care for people. They wouldn't. Um, they would destroy uh, populations. And we're seeing that China is one of these nations in the, the times of the Gentiles. Um, and j- this is just showing uh, a preview of how they'll treat the world as they gain power, uh, as other prophecies are fulfilled. And there's an article going up soon at the Trumpet called What is Going On in Shanghai, which will have more details, have videos where you can uh, see this information for yourself, but also just encourage people to even the Russia and China in prophecy booklet it will help place this into that that broader prophetic context. We will leave links in the show notes to Russia and China and prophecy, and also to the article that Abe just mentioned there, what's going on in Shanghai. Thanks very much for that, Abe. For the next segment, we'll take a look at France, where the first round of presidential elections have revealed a nation that is growing more and more extremist. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, over the weekend, France held the first round of their presidential election, and uh, the candidates for the normal mainstream parties for France, what 10, 20 years ago would have been the Republicans and the Democrats, those parties combined won 6.7% of the vote. It's just a massive demonstration of uh, how much politics have been changing in Europe. That uh, you know, this this feels like this was something we were talking about all the time. Uh, I guess election season has been a bit off, and we've had some bigger uh, news events like the invasion of Ukraine. But this story of Europe shifting away from traditional established parties and looking for something radically different has not gone away at all. Uh, that's just. Uh, an almost unprecedented collapse from these mainstream parties. And uh, instead, you've got a lot of uh, different politicians who would typically be considered uh, absolutely beyond the pale, uh, just even in, within France a few years ago, within uh, within just traditional politics. So uh, the one of the winners is Emmanuel Macron, uh, he would be probably the most mainstream of all of them, but I think uh, I think we're all familiar by now with uh, uh, Macron's Napoleon complex. He's got a lot of uh, unpopularity with France, just as any sitting leader uh, always does. Uh, but then you look at the other people that got very substantial portions of the vote. You had uh, Mr. Zemmour, who has had some uh, quite radical for Europe things to say about Islam and, and restricting Muslims' presence. Uh, within France, you've got Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is radically uh, left-wing, uh, just a socialist, maybe even communist, uh, you know, out and out uh, in all of those things. And then Marine Le Pen, the second-place winner, who will now she will face off directly with Macron. And for a long time, Marine Le Pen and she used to the party she leads used to be called the National Front. That used to be considered beyond the pale. Uh, that nobody, no kind of reasonable person could vote for. Now, she has done a lot to try and sanitize the party and get rid of some of that reputation. But the fact that she is in number two, again, shows this shift for something radically different. Maybe we want something um, different to the way politics is done. And her, her, her policies have been, well, they've been described as nationalistic and socialist, which uh, you push those two words together and uh, you get a very famous abbreviation uh, for that. I mean, she isn't, uh, she isn't a Nazi, but those are the two kind of pillars there where she wants to make some radical changes. She wants France to stand up to Islam, to take powers back for the EU, to quit NATO's military structure. Uh, a massive left-wing ed- economic policy is coupled with that where uh, basically, if you're a family and have three kids, you get £100,000 from the government uh, and uh, no taxes for under 30s, I think, is another of her proposals. So, I mean, you can see why some of that is popular, but at the same time, it's uh, it, it's very radical. So she's going off. She's facing against Macron. They'll be having a runoff election in just over a week. And 
it's anybody's game. I mean, the, the latest figures put Macron, the polls Macron ahead by a hair. And again, normally people would think this would be a, a, a cakewalk for, for, for Macron, that he would have it in the bag. But uh, instead, he's barely hanging in there. So this is a uh, just a seismic shift that's happening in French politics. And um, you mentioned a little bit about how some of this is happening out of kind of a growing disdain for the United States and NATO. Uh, what more can you tell us about that? Yeah, you're having a shift, I think, into you know, we live in a world where America and Britain basically created the ideal that democracy is is the way that we do government. And it's a democracy that exists within certain parameters. Uh, and you're seeing a Europe becoming disenchanted with democracy to the point that they're wanting, willing to go outside of those parameters uh, into things that would be, I think, probably illegal under the U.S. Constitution. So you're seeing the rise of uh you know, Victor Orban is, is going to coin the term maybe uh, you know, illiberal democracy, uh, where you, maybe the people pick a strong man, but then he's not constrained uh, by law and restraints in in the same way. So it's I mean, we just heard about the times of the Gentiles. It's a similar shift within within Europe. It's a shift to a different world where democ where things that were once the norm are no longer the norm. And like I said, this is something we have we have written about quite a lot. I had an article a couple of years ago, European politics are in a death spiral, just talking about the way that you get this kind of crisis. This, once this gets going, democracy become, very quickly becomes uh, untenable because this polarization, this division, this rise of the extremes make it impossible for anything to get done, which then pushes more people to, to the extreme. And this article goes through that in more detail. But we saw this in the 1930s. That's probably the most disturbing thing about this pattern is we've been here before and we've seen where it leads. And the Bible prophesies this coming shift. Uh, it talks about the fact that you're going to have Europe, Europe led by a strongman. Revelation 17 talks about a European power led by 10 kings. So we've been saying for years that you would see this shift away from, say, British and American style liberal democracy. That's exactly what we saw over the weekend in France. Uh, and that's what we're seeing. You know, France is just one. You're seeing it across this this whole continent. European politics are in a death spiral is the name of that article. Uh, we will leave a link to that in our show notes. Thanks very much for that, Richard. For the next story, we'll take a look at Iran, where economic sanctions led by the U.S. are supposed to be leaving the nation isolated and even humbled. But that's not at all how the reality is turning out. For this, we'll go back to Brent. Yeah, there's two ways, uh, two approaches to this the nuclear deal that the United States is trying to enact or reenact with Iran and try and get them to sign onto the deal. One way is to make things as difficult as possible, bring them to their knees so that they're willing to curtail their nuclear program. Um, that's one way. The other way is to try and cozy up to Iran, do a lot of confidence building measures, make things nice for Iran to show that um, we're able to get a nuclear deal going and, and kind of bring uh, Iran in from the cold already. And so what we're seeing with the Biden administration, it seems, is more the second one. We're not going to make Iran hurt. We're going to actually alleviate the pressure already so that they're encouraged to sign onto a nuclear deal. And we saw that with a story coming across from the Free Beacon this week. It's entitled Iranian Ghost Armada Ferries 22 billion worth of illicit oil to China. So oil sales from from Iran are under US sanction uh, as per the old nuclear deal. And specifically when, um, and even more specifically, when several of these companies that are engaging in this illegal trade are also under sanction um, for being in connection with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, that's a terrorist entity by definition from the United States. And so what we're seeing, and as the Free Beacon brings out, um, the United States is kind of allowing Iran to sell its oil to China without inflicting any type of, of, of sanctions on these companies. This is what uh, he writes. This is uh, Adam Credo for the Free Beacon. He said, Iran's black market oil trade has thrived under the Biden administration, fueling accusations the United States is turning a blind eye to sanctions enforcement 
in order to generate goodwill with Tehran as part of a diplomatic effort to ink a revamped nuclear deal. So the U.S. knows this trade's going on. They say they're talking to China to try and stop them from buying it. However, Iran doesn't seem like uh, they're worried at all that the U.S. is going to implement or enforce the sanctions that are in place as a hope that they will sign on to a nuclear deal. So in some ways, it's almost like the nuclear deal is already in effect since Iran's, you know, already getting lots of cash uh, from China. And this uh, this Iran nuclear deal is something that Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has called the worst foreign policy blunder in U.S. history. Can you tell us a little bit about why it was just such a horrendous blunder? I think we've got a really good article in the latest um, Trumpet magazine by Joshua Taylor entitled The Worst Foreign Policy Blunder 2. And it's kind of a spinoff, Mr. Flurry's first, uh, well, him talking about the first deal being the worst foreign foreign policy blunder, because the original nuclear deal, it basically put a sunset or it it kind of slowed uh, Iran's nuclear process and nuclear um, march towards a nuclear weapon but it only slowed it for a certain amount of years after which they could legally develop nuclear weapons there were sunset clauses inside of it and what it well, how it benefited iran is that up front up front before they prove that they're going to adhere to the deal they get lots of money they got about 150 billion dollars of cash the first time around uh, of money unfrozen assets and 1.8 billion dollars cash i should say this second deal is basically the same thing they're going to get about 100 billion dollars in unfrozen assets so a lot of access to money for them and we're for, for, we're further along towards the end of those original sunset clauses, meaning that Iran is not going to have another 15 years before it can develop a nuclear weapon. It's only going to have another five or six because it's going back to the first nuclear deal. And that's when the time clock started. So Iran's going to be closer to a bomb and they're going to get lots of money this second time around. And and Mr. Flurry has written at length, and even Joshua Taylor goes into it in his article, that this is actually in some ways not really a blunder. This is a purposeful decision by the United States as a way to empower Iran um, to do what Iran wants to do. Iran wants nuclear weapons. Iran wants to take over the Middle East and the world if it could. And this uh, this administration, the United States, actually agrees with much of those policies of the Iranians. Well, thanks very much for that, Brent. And for our final story of the show today, we're going to take a look at soaring inflation in the United States. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go once again to Andrew. Yeah, if you thought the uh, inflation crisis had hit its peak or was about to uh, get better, you were definitely wrong because they just released the numbers for March inflation and saw that prices overall have increased 8.5% from March a year ago uh, and so that is a, that's a pretty big jump that was it was 7.9 percent uh, in April from April a year ago so that's a, a 0.6 jump in just one month which is uh, which is huge and uh, and the numbers led the 8.5 percent that's the highest since December uh, 1981. So we're looking at the highest jump in about 40 years. So about 40, so about 40 year high and it may go higher yet. So it's, it depends. It's uh it may get as bad as it was during the, the Carter years. I, th- I think some economists say with the fed raising rates that it, it may actually go back down before it quite hits Carter levels. I think it got up to 15% for a while in the, in the late seventies, but huge, um, huge burden on Americans, uh, particularly, the um, the numbers that were bad for shelter was up 3.8%. Food is up 8.8%. Uh, new cars up 12.5%. Uh, the natural gas to heat your house up 21.6%. Used cars up 35%. Uh, gasoline, that's the one most people notice, <laughs> up 48%. Uh, and then fuel oil up 70%. So just huge numbers. I think some Bloomberg economists crunched the numbers and said that the average American household will probably be spending uh, $5,200 more this year if they buy the same things they bought last year. 
Wow. Yeah, some really dramatic numbers there. And uh, I understand that the Biden administration is coming under some serious pressure from this, even within the Democratic Party. Yeah, Biden's numbers, his approval ratings have hit an all time low with 60 percent of Americans no longer approving of how he's running the country. Uh, and those uh, those low approval ratings have uh, quite a few Democrats in there uh, as well. As a matter of fact, they say, according to the latest poll numbers, 22 percent of people who voted for Biden no longer approve of how he's running the country. And the two biggest issues that people disapprove of are out of control uh, illegal immigration and inflation. It's almost 70 percent of the country disapproves of how Biden's in handling inflation. Uh, and that number includes something like uh, like 41 percent of Democrats, almost wow. half of Democrats do not like how he's handling inflation. Uh, Senator uh, uh, Joe Manchin, who's a, a Democratic senator from West Virginia, has been uh, speaking out against the Biden administration's inflation policy, uh, basically almost sounding like a Republican or a libertarian, saying that we cannot spend our way to a balanced, healthy economy and continue adding thirty trillion to our thirty trillion dollar national debt. And so, really hitting the nail on the head there, because Biden's been he's been trying to pass the pass the buck off to Putin, saying that like, well, Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, is responsible for the inflation. And like, all right, well, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has pushed gas prices up a bit, but the, but the gas prices were going up before he invaded, and the food prices and the other prices were already at like seven percent levels before he invaded. So right. this is definitely do with deficit spending, money printing, quantitative easing, uh, COVID stimulus checks. And as much as the Biden administration tries to pass the buck to Putin, uh, even most Americans know that's not true. Even about half the people in his own party know that's not true. Yeah, really interesting development there. Andrew has written an article that's up on the trumpet.com right now. It's called Inflation Turns Democrats Against Biden. So you can find a link to that in our show notes for today's program. And you can find links there to all of the articles and other pieces of literature that we've discussed today. That's on the trumpet.com. Well, we are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments that you may have about today's episode to letters at the trumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondeau, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. And we'll leave you today with these words from Leo Bascoglia. Your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.